Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This is Political Currency with Ed Bulls and George Osborne. Another week, another George Osborne globe-trotting week, I believe. Well, I was at a funeral in Berlin. That's an old Michael Caine movie, by the way. But it was uh, quite an amazing thing. It was a state funeral for Wolfgang Schäuble, who had been finance minister when I was chancellor. And I think you would have rather enjoyed it, Ed, if you can say you enjoy a funeral. But he was a great man. He lived to a good age, and it was a sort of celebration of his life. But it was in the big Protestant cathedral in Berlin, the Berliner Dam. It was under the statues of Martin Luther and Calvin. And, you know, it was very, very sort of high Protestant German service. And then there was a pretty remarkable, we all were then taken into the Bundestag, the German parliament, afterwards. And Emmanuel Macron gave a kind of funeral eulogy in the parliament. So if you like German music, big state occasions, a bit of politics and some European unity, I'm all in favour of those things. Uh, it was quite quite a thing to be invited to. I was very honoured to be there. I um, went to meet him in Berlin when I was Shadow Chancellor. He was a very big, imposing figure, even though he was in a wheelchair because of tragedy in his life. Someone tried to kill him. I mean, he was in a wheelchair because he was shot three times. And he was the man who was the unifier of Germany. He was the negotiator for unification on behalf of West Germany. And I heard in the eulogies, he was absolutely decisive in the decision to make Berlin the capital of Germany, a unified Germany, run Bonn, even though many people wanted to stay in Bonn because that's where all the institutions were. And even though he was very much a West German, he was born on the banks of the Rhine and he was passionate about the relationship with France, which is why Macron spoke. He was absolutely clear that the new capital needed to be back in Berlin. And you were the formal representative of the British government. Well, I'm, I'm not saying in any way that you're jumping on the Cameron bandwagon. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying there's a bit of sort of, you know, jealousy here. God, give us a role. Give us a role. Yeah, well, I, I was, I don't, I'm not sure I was the formal representative. I was only the only representative of Britain there. And um, I'll tell you what was striking. I mean, there were lots of European leaders there, the president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, Christine Lagarde, lots of people I've been in. Ecofin with the uh, European Finance Minister's Council. It all felt a bit sad that, you know, I mean, there was quite a lot still years later. Quite a lot of people said, George, we're so sorry, Britain's not in the European Union. We really miss you. And a couple of the Germans and some of the Nordic representatives there said, you know, we really miss Britain's voice around the table. So the whole thing was a rather sad occasion because it was a funeral. But for me, it, there was a kind of heavy hint of sort of nostalgia, of regret about the decisions our own country has made. In no way am I being competitive, but I'm actually off on the Eurostar after we record today to Paris for the annual Franco-British clock. So I'm going to go and see the other side uh, of the German... Explain, you better explain what a clock is. A clock is, it's an annual meeting where you have people from politics and finance and trade unions and journalism come and talk about the state of the two countries and their relationship. And I've been going for... Almost 30 years. I first went in, I think, 1996 when we were in opposition before the 97 
election. And uh, it's always like, fascinating to see, you know, what is the state of French politics? They're, of course, observing us. This year, it will all be about how the new French Prime Minister, the 34-year-old Gabriel Attal, I think is how you pronounce his We're name. We're both a bit jealous of that, aren't we? We are 34. <laughs> Can you imagine being 34? But of course, the other thing going on in French politics is the rise of Le Pen. And with Macron standing down at the next presidential election, you know, could you see a lurch to the right in France? And what would that mean? So always fascinating. I will report back next week. However, first of all, we've got to talk about the events of the week. And in particular, Simon Clark the former levelling up secretary, former chief secretary to the Treasury, the number two to Rishi Sunak launches a coup against the Prime Minister on Tuesday night in which he says that Mr Sunak has gone from asset to anchor and the party faces an electoral massacre under his leadership. So we have to talk about that and is that coup going to succeed? And then I think we should come on to talk about Rishi Sunak's plan, which is clearly going to be to cut taxes at some point this year, maybe in the budget in March or in another fiscal event before the election, or maybe in both. He's been talking that up. Jeremy Hunt's been talking that up. There's been some good borrowing numbers. But does any of this really make a difference, either to the Conservatives' electoral fortunes or indeed to the kind of finances of the country? Because are tax cuts realistic, given the state of the public finances? And then, given that you've been in Germany, we thought we would talk about, there's a new word on the block, Dexit. German exit from the European Union. The AFD, the anti-European, anti-immigration party, now doing really well in the polls. Big demonstrations against them in the streets in Germany. And people talking for the first time about, you know, is Germany really secure at the centre of Europe? First of all, though, the Simon Clark letter. I was... Uh, I always thought he was kind of quite a sober, sensible type. And then he backed Liz Truss. And ever since then, he's been quite wild. I was on Good Morning Britain presenting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week. And when the letter broke, we were all hearing that he was going to be the first. There would be other people following after him. You know, a coup, a challenge to the Prime Minister needs to have allies. Actually, David Davis, Liam Fox, Preeti Patel, even Liz Truss saying publicly that they were backing Rishi Sunak and that Simon Clark had got this wrong. It felt like a coup which failed almost in its inception. Yeah, I mean, Simon is an interesting character. I don't actually know very well. We didn't really overlap in politics. But he is the most successful of the red wall seat conservatives in terms of his political career. He represents Middlesbrough South. You know, he made it into the cabinet. And you're right, I think he had a reputation of being quite an original thinker. But he's now become kind of Sunak's most public opponent. Did something happen, do you think, between them when Sunak was Chancellor and he was Chief Secretary? It was such a surprise to me that he would back Liz Truss. It feels as though it's got almost personal. Well, it was, first of all, quite a decisive endorsement of Truss in that contest, and it was a big nail in the Sunak's hopes of becoming leader at but that point. But it surprised point. me. Was that a surprise to you? Yes, because you would assume that a Chief Secretary would go with their Chancellor. You know, what this really speaks to is just how sort of steeped in the blood the Conservative Party has been over recent years. There have been so many turnovers of leadership and so many kind of assassinations and that everyone is complicit. So, you know, if you were a Boris Johnson supporter, you'd say Sunak is an assassin. Sunak led a coup. Or if you were Simon Clark, you'd say Sunak uh, was unhelpful in the bringing down of Liz Truss. If you were Theresa May, you would say Boris Johnson was right. the assassin. Exactly. So there's, you know, there's been years now of this. So it's very hard for the leadership to call for unity when they themselves became the leaders on the back of a coup. I think there's a kind of interesting question behind all this, which is what is this thing called the Conservative Britain Alliance? This is this sort of shadowy group, it turns out, exists, that Simon is somehow part of, that seems to have commissioned this big opinion poll, which we've talked about on this show before, but is still casting a big shadow over conservative politics. At the on moment. the front of the Daily Telegraph. On the front of the Daily Telegraph. And fronted by David Frost, now yeah. Lord Frost. And I think to begin with, I assumed that he was at the centre of this. But is that right? Well, we don't know is the short answer. And I would do a bit of, you know, to kind of paraphrase Woodward and Bernstein, follow the money. We still don't know who paid for this really big opinion poll, which, by the way, showed that the Conservatives were going to lose heavily and showed on an individual constituency basis whether MPs would win or lose. And half, at least, of Tory MPs have looked at that poll and said, I'm going to lose my seat, including, by the way, Simon Clark. And to me, a big unanswered question in British politics at the moment is who paid for that opinion poll? 
One of the people who apparently works for this Conservative Britain Alliance is a Mr. Dry. Mr. Dry, it turns out, was some key figure, we're told, in uh, Rishi Sunak's Downing Street. And it would lead you to think, you know, is there really a large organisation or large group of people plotting to bring down Rishi Sunak? Or, you know, is Simon Clark and one or two others like Andrea Jenkins, who, you know, took over your constituency? Did you? I think she beat you is the way that you put it yeah, in politics. I remember you used to celebrate her success. I did indeed. I got her to introduce me at a party conference. And how do you feel about that now? I still actually am a bit of a fan of Andrea, but uh, are you? <laughs> not, not not necessarily of all of her politics, but uh, I have a soft spot for her. That, I mean, that's staggeringly eclectic of you. <laughs> well, I am quite eclectic in my political <laughs> days. I, um, the Tory party's been through so many different convulsions that, you know, I don't have a, a single tribe anymore. She was out with Boris Johnson saying she wants Donald Trump to be the next president of the United States a few days ago. Well, I, as I said... Are the, you backing on that one? I have to say it wasn't entirely clear when I was doing my constituency visits to get her elected in your neck of the woods that uh, she was going to turn out the way she has. But I like the fact she's got a bit of fight in her. That's my, uh, you know, she's like, so many MPs are quite boring, right? I mean, uh, sorry, huge disrespect to loads of But lots of MPs don't shine with a set of views that you go, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, we are getting diverted from the uh, the, the key thing, which is does the Simon Clark intervention. You know, he called on Rishi Sunak to go and he basically said the Tories are doomed if we don't change leader. Is that a kind of a herald of things to come? And it's interesting, isn't it, these coups? You know, what, do they signal the beginning of a big upheaval or do they fizzle out? You know, I, There are lots of different examples, aren't there, through history? There's the coups which clearly work and remove the leader and there's a change. The coups which clearly fail and actually end up with the person being challenged, ends up stronger rather than weaker as a result. And then there's the ones where, although it looks like they're failing, actually they weaken the prime minister, the incumbent, and in the end, people look back and say, that was the moment. And on the first category, the Conservatives are always better at this. Tory coups tend to work, don't they? If you think, you know, the strike of Michael Heseltine against Margaret Thatcher, the coup against Boris Johnson, the coup against Ian Duncan Smith when he was leader of the opposition... The Conservatives are good at coups. Well, of course, Margaret Thatcher, the great hero of the Conservative movement, came to office as a result of a coup against Ted Heath. But then she was famously brought down, not just by Heseltine, but by the man who had been her Chancellor and Foreign Secretary, Geoffrey Howe. And he did this famous intervention in the House of Commons. This is where the sort of modern history of Tory coups begins. It's rather like sending your opening batsmen to the crease, only for them to find the moment the first balls are bowled, that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain. <laughs> so, a rather gentlemanly way of putting it. But uh, that was Geoffrey Howe in the House of Commons basically putting the nail into Margaret Thatcher's Complaining that coffin. he had gone to a European negotiation and Margaret Thatcher had undercut them. And that led to Heseltine challenging and her departure, but ultimately John Major becoming the Prime Minister. So yes, you know, these coups can succeed. And the most spectacular recent example of that is Boris Johnson, who looked unassailable, to use a great political word, which is normally used when you're about to come a cropper. You know, he had a big majority, he'd won Brexit, and then, you know, he falls as a result of a coup that was initiated by Rishi Sunak's resignation and Sajid Javid's resignation from the cabinet on the same day. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. And that's a key thing, isn't it? If you think about the coup against Thatcher, the coup against Johnson, actually the IDS one as well, very senior ministers or shadow ministers in the government or the shadow government wielded the knife. I mean, well, Simon Clark is not one of those. He's not a senior part of Rishi Sunak. But it doesn't have to be... I mean, I was a backbench MP when Ian Duncan Smith fell. And in fact, I, I was one of a team who used to brief Ian Duncan Smith every morning for Prime Minister's questions every Wednesday morning. The team was me, Boris Johnson and David Cameron. Oh, and were you behind the coup against... I, no, I was not a fair... Oh, no, oh, you mean the team... With the, the, we were the PMQs team, oh, plus, oh, oh. plus uh, Paul Goodman, who later left Parliament. And uh, we, you know, we. So just, you weren't behind the coup we, against IDS. I was not behind the coup against IDS, um, but we did have a discussion. The three of us, David, Boris, and me, we knew MPs. 
like, uh, how are we going to vote in this confidence motion that had been called as a result of Ian's leadership? And we all agreed, look, you know, that we worked with Ian, the Tory party was going nowhere under his leadership, so we'd all vote against him. So it gets to the day, I go and cast my vote as an MP in a secret ballot. And then the deputy chief whip approaches me, because at this point, the whips are trying to get, have told Ian Duncan Smith he has to go and he's refused. And deputy chief whip says, Boris Johnson hasn't voted, find him. So I run off and find Boris Johnson leaving Parliament. I say, oh, I've got to go and edit The Spectator. I haven't got time to vote. I said, what do you mean you haven't got time to vote in the Tory leadership contest? Today? Anyway, so Boris went back and he voted against him. And then we all got together later that evening, David, me and Boris, and we all said, oh, well, that was quite hard to do, but it's probably the right thing for the party. And uh, David said, well, actually, I've got a bit of a confession. I voted to keep him. David Cameron David voted Cam- to keep <laughs> I said, you promised us you were gonna, we were all going to vote against him. And he said, yeah, I don't think we should set a precedent that uh, Tory leaders should be deposed. He said, I'm, I'm thinking ahead. <laughs> At that point, the penny dropped to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, David's maybe got bit more of a strategic view of his career than I have at the moment. But it worked. So despite the best efforts of David yeah. Cameron, it still it's succeeded. Still worked. It still worked. So that was, anyway, that was a coup that succeeded in opposition. Yeah. Then there are coups that clearly fail, aren't there? Well, a classic recent example of that is the coup against Jeremy Corbyn in 2016, led by Hillary Benn, but there was a lot of shadow ministers resigned. But it didn't work. And Jeremy Corbyn stayed as leader. He went on to fight two more general elections. And in a way, what happened was that once this sort of sense of collective loyalty and you know the broad church was broken by the coup, it was much easier for him than to become Jeremy Corbyn. He didn't have to kind of Protect, have a shadow cabinet, yeah. which was sort of reflective of the wider party. And he doubled down on being Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, I think in retrospect, that was a disastrous uh, coup, which makes things much, much worse for the coup people. What about the ones against Gordon in the run up to the 2010 election? There was James Pennell resigning, which was pretty dramatic. Wasn't 2009, it? June which, or July. Let's hear what Peter Mandelson said to the BBC about this at the time. I was with Gordon at two minutes to ten when a call was put through to him from James Pennell. I didn't know it was James Pennell. He picked up the phone. He started talking and arguing immediately with this person. And I said, who is that? You know, and he said, it's James. He gave me the phone. I tried to argue him out of going. He'd made up his mind in any way. Within seconds, somebody put their head round the door and said, you better watch the 10 o'clock news. In the last few minutes, I have spoken to James Pennell, the Work and Pension Secretary. He is resigning from the government in order to force a leadership ballot. He is calling on Gordon Brown to stand aside for the good of his party. Well, it's a special request from Amal Rajan that we feature Nick Robinson every week in this podcast. So I think we've just done that. Very good. I actually found out about it as Shadow Chancellor, but... Uh, day beforehand. What? We thought we were told. You're joking. I had I my, my, secret, my secret sources told me that both David Miliband and James Purnell were going to resign. No. And then when it came to the telecom, we were all ready for, you know, in the Who told you? Well, a, another Come little on. birdie. I, I know. I no, how many even, the, even these years on, I can't tell uh, you that. Was but, it a conservative who told you? It wasn't. There certainly wasn't a conservative. They wouldn't know. Was um, it somebody who had in the past been connected to the Labour government? It was someone who knew about what was going on, obviously. And, uh, it was somebody who had previously I'm served... Not to, <laughs> it's not like... It's not the court of law, I mate. knew you'd stop me in the end, but I thought I might as well carry on. Anyway, I knew, we knew, before Gordon Brown knew it. Too but then, right. of course, Miliband didn't resign, did he? Mm. And which maybe was a big sliding door moment in David Miliband's career. And then there was the Jeff Hoon... But it stopped me being Chancellor of the Exchequer. When I was travelling down on the train... Doesn't get a call. rankle even to this day? No, because I did I mean, by that time, I didn't want to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. I was the education secretary. No, it, at that someone, point... Someone record that. No, no, I'm not. I, I really, really... I'd said to Gordon and anybody who'd listened in the days before, this is a crazy idea. The idea mm. that at this stage, you'd remove Alistair Darling forcibly and put me in was just was mad. It would have been unbelievably divisive, but it's what Gordon wanted. Peter Mandelson saw Alistair to ask him whether he would take another job, and Alistair said no, he would just go to the backbenchers. But this was in train. And then James Pennell launches this exocet. And the one thing it did was absolutely stop, um, you know, I found out on the Today programme the next morning I wasn't becoming Chancellor because it was announced Alistair Darling was staying as Chancellor. So that's a failed coup. Well, it, it, it failed because in the end, I mean, interesting question. It was question. a bit like Simon Clark, wasn't it? It was like you and whose army, basically. Well, it? the line has always been that there was no coordination. But it sounds from your story I that think Miliband was, was peeled. We should get David on and he can tell us. Uh, we, was he peeled off? I think he was peeled off by Peter Mandelson. Well, that's he, my theory. But anyway, we're getting, not let's for the get first on to, time. He didn't quite deliver. 
It was a bit of a carrying the banana, but it carrying the Gordon. banana moment. Remember that? Yeah, but it strengthened <laughs> Gordon those, in, in the, the party. That was when David Miliband turned up at a conference holding a banana when he was supposed to be the big assassin. Anyway, what about the coups? Because this may be, you know, perhaps Simon Clark is an example of a coup that appears to fail, but does actually it sort of sets off a train of events that leads ultimately to someone being deposed. And I mean, there's kind of examples of that. There's Back in the Mr. Time, Anthony Mayer was a bench Tory MP who stood against Margaret Thatcher. Everyone thought that was ridiculous, but it did, in fact, set in train the events we were just talking about earlier. And then there was Tom Watson, the kind of junior Labour, I think he was a minister or something, was he? And it was called the Curry House Plot, him and a couple of other junior Labour MPs sitting in a curry house in Wolverhampton, Belash Curry House, which I actually subsequently visited, not coincidentally. You know, he said that Tony Blair had to go and step down and be replaced by Gordon Brown. It was seen off, but then a few days later, Blair actually did announce he was going to resign a year later. What about that? That's an example, isn't it? I think that um, both... You knew about that, come on. Both Anthony Mayer in 1989 and Tom Watson in 2006 are both examples of a coup which looks like it's failed, but people look back and say... That was the moment, you know, because, of course, Tony Blair didn't lose his job and Tom Watson had to resign. This had been going on for months, you know, the question of when Tony Blair was going to stand down, the smooth and orderly transition. And then, to everybody's surprise, the Saturday before, he did an interview with The Times where he basically said he wasn't going to stand down, he was going to carry on. And so, this was kind of like a big destabilising Brown and moment. Balls sent in the troops. Come on. No, it was the opposite of that, because we had learned... I think the lesson for Michael Heseltine, who, of course, didn't become the leader when Margaret Thatcher went. Look, Gordon absolutely wanted Tony Blair to stand down and him to take over. And he was absolutely frustrated that it wasn't happening in a smooth and orderly way. And everybody was completely destabilised by this Times interview across the party, not just in Gordon Brown's office. But then on the Monday, I think it was, I was with Gordon and um, Ed Miliband, Douglas Alexander, Sunai, Spencer Livermore. And then I had a, um, a text on my phone. And I went out to the room and called Tom Watson. And Tom Watson told me what was happening. And I said, you, you do what? He said, I'm afraid there's a letter, 2001 intake. A lot of them were people who had fought seats in 2005 and it had been very close. And, you know, this oh, is what we're doing. Tom, Tom had gone to North Queens Ferry, which is where Gordon lives in Scotland, a couple of weeks earlier. And when this emerged subsequently and they said, well, what on earth did you talk to Gordon about? He implausibly said that Gordon and him had watched Postman well, Pat videos with their children. There is no doubt that that Tom Watson visit to see Gordon when it came out afterwards was damaging to Gordon. There's no doubt about that. I had This This was the episode of Postman Pat where the postmaster gets assassinated? Well, it? OK. I went back into the meeting and said, this is happening. Everyone was shocked. Gordon was appalled. He said, stop them. I said, I can't stop them. They've done it. This is happening. Gordon thought this was going to be seen as something associated with him. He would be the divisive Heseltine figure. There'd be a massive backlash and it would stop him being able but to be didn't. the successor. It didn't, but that's what he thought. So, so in that moment, we were all kind of really shocked by what was going on. And then, of course, Tom went on the world at one. He ended up resigning. It looked like it had failed to begin. But I think Tony Blair then thought, actually... This is the time. And a few days get later, he made this announcement. He got ahead so of come it. back to today. I mean, I love all that. That's a really oh, interesting no. piece of... We could uh, talk about this for hours. <laughs> Which category does Simon Clark go in? So you've got a, Definitely not success. It feels like it's going to fail. It feels like we're way too close to an election. Let me be absolutely clear. I think it would be a huge mistake to replace Rishi Sunak, who's brought order and sense after years of chaos. Isn't there a counter-argument? To the leadership of the Tory party. But, you know, it's They're interesting. behind in the polls. They need well, some change. They need something which gives them some new momentum, some new interest. It worked for John Major taking over for Margaret Thatcher in the 92 election. You know, is it is it impossible as an idea? The idea that you provide within your party the change that the country wants is a classic Conservative trick. And in fact, the Conservatives are usually better at it than Labour because Labour is too tribal and sticks with its leaders, even when they're not succeeding. I just don't think it would work today because A, there's not an obvious alternative who would be any better than Rishi Sunak. And B, the Conservatives have already pulled this trick off several times in the last <laughs> several years. So <laughs> you know, the, the, to try and persuade the country that yet another Tory prime minister is the solution to their problems, I just don't think really works. Nevertheless, you know, there will be many Tory MPs who are facing unemployment later this year. And what emerges inside a parliamentary party as they're staring at defeat is quite a division between those sitting on very safe seats who go, OK, well, we're going into opposition. We've been in office for 
14 years and, you know, maybe that's the way things should be or going to be anyway. And those who say, yeah, it's all right for you. I am about to lose my constituency and I and I'll lose my job and lose the career I love and I want to do something about it. So the only leadership strategy that works in the Tory party is having a poll lead. The only thing that works as a unifying strategy is the promise that you might win the election. And you can announce any amount of policy. You can make any amount of promises to the Conservative Party. If you don't look like you're going to win, you're going to have huge leadership problems. And I think this is a sign of that. Simon Clark's intervention is a sign that you know the party is not persuaded, partly because of this opinion poll funded by the Conservative Britain Alliance, by who we don't know. The Conservative Party at the moment thinks it's going to lose, and that is very destabilising for the leadership. I guess the point about this week is we don't know how we will look back and see Simon Clark's letter. And uh, if after the local elections, if the Conservatives do badly, they're still behind the polls, and then there is a desire and desperation to change, people will say, well, Simon Clark was, you know, was ahead of the game. If, on the other hand, there's a budget and tax cuts and it starts to turn round political fortunes as the economy recover, people will say, Simon Clark, what an idiot. He was the hoon and Hewitt of the Conservative Party in his era, a coup which absolutely failed. This is Jeff Hoon, Patricia Hurd, oh, no. uh, early 2010. There's a broad, January by the way, of both those, the James Burnell and Hoon Hewitt coup, there is a good question, which is, should they have succeeded? Would Labour have potentially won the 2010 election if they had switched leader? I um, think... Labour did better in the 2010 election, particularly in Scotland, than anybody expected. And that actually was because Gordon Brown still had a standing because of the global financial crisis. And the problem was the opinion polls never said at the time that somebody else taking over would have made things better. Sorry. I remember the Hoon Hewitt coup really well because I ended up on in the snow in Downing Street doing an interview in support of Gordon. You always have to move quickly when a coup's happening. But I was actually at a reception with the Fonz. I was with Henry Winkler in Downing Street <laughs> discussing, and I had to say to the Fonz, I'm really sorry, Henry. Just got to go and do a quick interview. This is so, a jump the shark moment. It was a jump the shark moment. But as I said, maybe the budget and the economy are going to turn things around for Rishi Sunak. And we are going to talk about that next. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. So what Rishi Sunak wants to be talking about at the moment is the possibility of tax cuts. That's his plan to win the election and unify the Conservative Party. And he had, and Jeremy Hunt had, some good borrowing numbers this week, which suggests there's headroom, if that's the right way to put it, of around £20 billion to potentially cut taxes in the budget in March. And both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister over the weekend were hinting that there are further tax cuts to come. And of course, this is January. And in January this month, the national insurance cut that was announced before Christmas is taking effect and beginning beginning to be seen in people's pay packets. So there's a lot of talk of tax cuts, but there's also quite a lot of talk in the Tory party that the national insurance cuts before Christmas have not really landed with people, haven't had any impact on the polls. I have to say, I don't find that particularly surprising. The only thing I find surprising is that they thought it would. I mean, it's early days. It takes time for people to see tax cuts coming through. But at the same time, people are still seeing the bills are high. If you're renegotiating your mortgage, it will be a higher interest rate than on your previous fixed deal. It doesn't feel at the moment as though um, people are feeling better off and therefore telling them their taxes have been cut. It, kind of, it still jars a bit. 
Well, it's two things. First of all, you know, if you're a perfectly reasonable person, would say, well, hold on. National insurance was going up, you told me a couple of years ago. Now you've told me it's come down. I notice my income tax bill is still rising because you've frozen thresholds. You might not understand why your income tax bill is going up, but you know you certainly notice you're paying more in tax when you see your pay slip. So people's real experience is that they are not paying less tax. And second, people aren't stupid. They go, well, there's an election coming up, you know, and as much as I follow politics, I keep reading that Sunak and Hunter are under pressure to cut taxes, but taxes will probably go up after the election, whoever wins. So, you know, people are discounting some of these tax reductions. I think it's a mistake of the Conservative Party to think that a single budget measure, a single tax cut is going to transform their fortunes. You can establish the case over a period of time that Conservatives deliver lower taxes than Labour, because that is broadly speaking, what has been true over history. But the idea that you know, you're going to get a fair wind when you're 20% of the opinion polls and every single manoeuvre you're making is being put under the kind of political microscope of the political situation you're in, you know, I think points to the fact that this is not going to be the deliverance that the Conservatives are hoping for. I mean, it's the old phrase. I remember it being very powerful in the run-up to the 97 election when Ken Clark cut taxes and said, you know, you're getting better off. People saying, I know, but they give with one hand and take with the other. And that sense that my taxes have gone up and I should be feel good about a tax cut now, it's always hard. There is though, a broader strategic challenge here for both the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. They want to say, you know, after the chaos, they've restored order, they're being stable and long-termist, their economic plan is succeeding, and it's Labour which would be reckless and increase borrowing and push up interest rates and spend money that they haven't got. And at the same time, they're saying, we've got headroom and we're going to use that for tax cuts right now, even though the head of the Office of Budget Responsibility is pouring a little bit of cold water on that this week. There was a, a headline in the Mail on Sunday around Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor's article, and it was Hunt, tax cuts will spark new loss and boom. And the thing is, if you're a Conservative Chancellor or Prime Minister, you don't want to be the guy who's bringing the next loss and boom, because of course the loss and boom ended up in the Lawson bust in inflation recession, which came from that. And Well, A, you have to be over 50 to have a clue what that means. <laughs> so you know, half your electorate don't even know what you're talking about with a Lawson boom, right? Well, I know. Look, Nigel Lawson was a great chancellor and a great reforming chancellor. I disagree with many things he did, but I think the Lawson boom would be the thing that he would want to have uh, as his epitaph. No, in fact, and, in fact, in his epitaph, I was at his funeral, it was the, one of the things that actually people talked about that he regretted. But you can't accuse Labour of being reckless on spending and borrowing if at the same time you're borrowing to pay for tax cuts. What you're talking about here is consistency of message and chopping and changing your political message on the economy all the time is a real problem. And promising tax cuts when people think the public finances and the general state of the country makes that very hard to deliver in practice, real sustained tax cuts, you know, is also makes that very hard. And by the way, when Income tax is going up by £40 billion and you're cutting national insurance by £9 billion and asking people to be grateful. It's also hard to persuade people. All that said, if the Conservatives can establish this year that there is a consistent path of lower taxes under the Conservatives, that they've turned a corner, inflation's coming down, real incomes are rising. This is the message that I think Sunak was delivering this week and it's good to have him talking about the economy. That does put the spotlight a bit on Labour. And I wouldn't say Labour in any better shape on some of their tax and spending plans. I mean, this £28 billion Green Deal, this prosperity plan, they call it, which they announced in the 2021 party conference, Rachel Reeves announced, you know, it's, it seems to me they are still in the mess of trying to unravel their commitment and distance themselves. How have Labour allowed this story to run and run and run? It's, it's, it's the single most effective uh, Tory attack line at the moment. And, and it's been going on for over a year. Well, I think Labour has been trying to do a partial U-turn on this for the last year as well. And it hasn't quite worked yet because you still see in the weekend articles, the Chancellor using the 28 billion as his attack against Labour. And the problem with this is if you're the opposition, you're judged by two different metrics. You're judged by what your policies would mean given your fiscal rules. And Rachel Reeves has said she's committed to having the national debt falling as a percentage of GDP. And that comes before 28 billion. So she said last year that if 
the national debt doesn't allow her to do 28 billion, she would do what was affordable. And that might be a half of that or a quarter of that. We've discussed the fact that Jeremy Hunt has been trying to narrow that room for manoeuvre all of the, the time. But the second thing, if you're the opposition, which is different from the government, is that you are judged on how you would change the government baseline. So whatever the government does, if they cut some taxes in the budget and then there is a baseline of spending, tax and borrowing, if Labour says, well, on top of that, we're going to borrow some more for green projects, that allows the government to say, aha, higher borrowing, higher taxes, higher ha- taxes or higher interest rates. And that is why it's always hard to lead in opposition with a commitment to extra borrowing. An an unfunded... Even if you can say it's within your fiscal rules. And that is, I think, the problem they've got into. I've got two questions for you. So first of all, isn't it a bit odd that their big spending commitment is about green energy? I mean, why isn't it about the health service or some other sort of more pressing public service need? And second, now they're trying to get themselves off this hook. Why don't they just... You know, to use the old Dennis Healy quote, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Why don't they just make a really clean break with this £28 billion pledge rather than constantly kind of slightly changing the wording of it? Well, I think on the first point, the the green plan was about green growth and green jobs, a way of changing the growth profile of the economy, make the economy stronger as well as greener, and therefore bring in more tax revenues. And that has been the centrepiece of the Starmer Reeves growth agenda. So, if well, you, it was a bit of an Ed Miliband plan, isn't it? Well, but it was announced by Rachel Reeves, yeah. not by Ed Miliband, and Keir Starmer has continued to to say it. They've all been saying it is their growth plan. So they, I think, are worried about saying to the green world or people who obviously are worrying about climate change, or to people who are saying what's Labour's growth plan that they just back away from it. In fact, they were using it. I heard on the radio to explain how they'd handle the Tata steel closure differently. So they're they're deploying this twenty eight billion pounds, whilst at the same time wanting to say it shouldn't be counted against their borrowing requirements and it's not going to lead to higher taxes. But there is clearly a big pressure coming from from some people. I don't know exactly who saying to Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves the partial U-turn, saying that we'll stick with it as far as we can afford it. The fiscal rules must come first. That is not stopping the attacks on us from Joby Hunt. And therefore, you've got to do a U-turn, a withdrawal. And it's been reported in the papers in the last week. There's to be talks about this. Labour's reconsidering its position. And I think this what goes to... What would you do? Come on. Well, it goes, it goes to your second point. If you're going to do a U-turn, you've got to notice it. You've got to see it's happened. People need to hear Labour say that their commitment to... Uh, sound public finances and the fiscal rules comes before spending more money on this agenda or they're going to be open to this attack. And so the people who are saying that this is is dangerous, that you shouldn't lead with extra borrowing, are wanting to hype it up, to build it up so that there is then an announcement. And if they don't say something now, they're going to be asked about this in every interview. So I would say there is going to be a U-turn and that the they won't resile from a green plan they won't resile from the idea that that's a way to growth and jobs. They won't resile from the idea that you can spend now to strengthen the economy in the long term. But I think they'll have to come off this 28 billion number. They'll have to say the 28 billion number is gone, that it's ditched, or else they're so, going to be so open to this need, attack. You need a dead parrot sketch. You need to absolutely kill the 28 billion. You need something which looks like a U-turn. And I think that that's what they're going to end up doing. They've tried partial U-turns. It hasn't worked. They need a big U-turn. Right. Very good advice there. Isn't there a broader point here, which is all of this is for the birds, to pick up on my parrot analogy? You know, whether the Conservatives are talking about tax cuts or the Labour Party talking about more spending, the country's borrowing 97% of its national income at the moment. That's the latest numbers. And we're just about managing to hold below a 100%, which is our sort of would be quite a moment when Britain goes above 100% of GDP debt. And there's no long-term space for lower taxes. And there's not any great long-term space for much higher spending, certainly on discretionary things, given so much money is going to have to go on pensions and the health service and, you know, maybe on defence. And you know, So isn't this all a bit of a fantasy at the moment between both parties, that they're not really telling the country the truth, which is we're in a very tight fiscal corner, we've got an ageing population, it's a more dangerous world. And the idea we're going to be splashing money out on income tax cuts or big kind of green infrastructure plans is, you know, not realistic. It's interesting because uh, 
they won the Today programme this morning, the IFS, the Institute of Fiscal Studies, have done a report where they're saying that Britain's next government, Labour or Conservative, will face some of the toughest tax and spending choices any government's faced for a very, very long time. And there are two different fictions. Fiction one is about the public spending plans which underpin all of this. And Richard Hughes, as I said, head of the Office of Budget Responsibility, giving evidence this week, said that um, at least in a novel, a work of fiction, there's a story you tell and the government isn't really telling a story at all about what happens to spending on policing or defence or health in the years to come. And I think we should come back and talk about that because that's actually really important, what the public spending plans are for the next few years and is it really a sustainable way forward. But then the second fiction is this idea that Britain can, even though we've had a big rise in the tax burden, that we can have a lower tax burden. We have historically a lower tax burden than other European countries, higher than America, but that's actually because America has a private healthcare system. If you count American health as public, we're much more similar. But over the last 15, 20 years, the tax burden has stayed broadly the same, slightly risen, risen in this parliament. The idea that either party is saying we can credibly cut the tax burden This is an economy where, as you said, debt is high, interest rates are higher, and therefore servicing that is really expensive. We have a population which is ageing, and therefore a problem in social care and the National Health Service, which is going to cost us more money. And we have a world which is more dangerous than in our lifetimes, where the pressure on military spending to defend ourselves is going to rise rather than fall. With those pressures, the idea that any party can promise a lower tax burden in the next decade is for the bird. I think the counter-argument that people might say is, but don't cut the things which could help our economy to grow. Public investment, maybe the green energy plan, things which will make us stronger and generate more tax revenues. But, you know, realistically, the tax burden in Britain is not going to fall in the next five to ten years, whoever's in government. And it'd be much better if we were honest about that. Yeah, I'm not quite as pessimistic as that. I think if you can bring down the size of the state through a sustained effort and size of national income taken by GDP under my chancellorship fell from 45% to 40%, and you are able to start reducing taxes, and I think there is an argument that you can move more services into the private space. So, you know, but that's not an argument that the Conservative Party wants to take on at the moment. Also, that was at the end of, you know, you came in. And there was an unwinding of the rise in public spending during the global financial crisis. You got public spending down to similar levels to the end of the Margaret Thatcher period. Yeah. But to get to a lower level no, than I that... I agree. It's really hard to get below 40. I, I think spending as a share of national income was 39% when I stopped being chancellor, having been 45. But it's pretty hard to get below that, you know, because already I was running into heavy criticism that the state had shrunk too much and, you know, too many people had left the civil service and so on. And then you also find, I think, through British history, it's really hard to get the tax burden much below around 35% or indeed much higher before you get tax rebellions and people won't pay more taxes. Anyway, very interesting. But the NHS and ageing and defence and threats are are different to how they were even when you were Chancellor. That is absolutely true, certainly on the military side. But there's one country which is having even more problems with its budget than we are, and that is Germany, which is where I was earlier this week. And we're going to talk about that next. I was in Germany earlier this week for the funeral of Wolfgang Schäuble, as we were discussing at the beginning of the programme. All the top German politicians were there. Uh, the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, who's a social democrat, he's in coalition with the Greens and with the Liberals. But the Liberals in Germany are free market Liberals. And this coalition, which was a bit of an you know oddball alliance when they won in 2021, is actually struggling for two reasons. One is there's you know real tensions within the coalition, ideological tensions. And second, the German courts have ruled that their budget plans are unconstitutional because they've baked into their constitution essentially a sort of austerity provision, which is you can't get national debt too high and the budget deficit needs to be low. And so the German judges have blown up the budget and that to some degree has blown up the coalition. All the while, on the right of German politics, this party, the AFD, which you know, some people say is a kind of neo-Nazi thing, but it's I think probably taking it too far. You know, it's a it's definitely, however, a nationalist right-wing movement is gaining in popularity and is over twenty percent in the polls at the moment. And there were very big demonstrations just a couple of days before I was in Berlin across the whole of Germany 
against the rise of the AFD. So these were what they would call, people on the marches, anti-fascist rallies. That's actually an anti-fascist rally rather than a fascist rally. Right. I mean, people out on the streets protesting against the rise of the AFD, the far-right party, who are now surging in the, the opinion polls, not actually that far behind the main opposition party, the CDU, the Christian Democrats, the right of centre party. I came across the leadership of the Christian Democrats. Friedrich Mertz was at the um, funeral. And there's no doubt that they've got a big challenge themselves with how to deal with the rise of the AFD. And there, there are some local elections coming up, which uh, the AFD are predicted to do well in. It's always hard making difficult decisions when you have a coalition. I mean, you've experienced this, but this is a pretty unwieldy coalition. And Schultz, who I think he partly succeeded because he was seen to be safe, uncharismatic, not threatening, when Shades before the of any, anyone we can think well, of in Britain, any Labour leader we can think of in Britain? Well, I think you can definitely say that if you look at Schultz or um, Albanese in Australia or Biden in America, that sort of quieter, less kind of populist leaders can do quite well in elections. But then to govern, you need a bit of chutzpah as well. You need a bit of um, pizzazz. And maybe Schultz tells us that um, that's something you've got to work on. So lessons for a circular Starmer there. Well, I think... There are some parallels, isn't there? I mean, it's interesting. Keir Starmer is a very, you know, presentable, safe pair of hands Labour leader, but he's not exciting people in a dramatic way. But if you're making big decisions and difficult decisions, you have to take people with you. And that is a leadership challenge. So, you know, I think there are parallels with Schultz. There would certainly be parallels if Labour found themselves in coalition with the Liberal Democrats and especially the SNP. I think that would be a deeply unstable, if not a coalition, any kind of arrangement in the House of Commons would be deeply unstable if you have Scottish nationalists involved. And there's also, I think, you know, challenges which is different parts of that coalition want to spend more money. Now, in Germany, they're constrained by constitutional rules, which I have to say, I don't think it's very sensible to run your economic policy through your courtrooms. But in Britain, as we've been discussing, will be a real constraint on a progressive government as well. Although the CDU were were pushing the courts to to intervene, weren't they? I think the story is that there were exceptions to these constitutional rules or ceilings on spending and borrowing during the pandemic, and they were then extended to support Ukraine. And there were big pots of money, these funds which were unspent and the coalition thought they could then take those unspent pots and spend them on the green plan instead. And that is what the courts ruled against. They said, no, actually, you can't move those pots uh, into general spending and ruled it illegal. But it shouldn't really be, shouldn't this be for the Bundestag? Not the, well, anyway, we're not, it ends up with the coalition us, having to raise taxes. And there have been farmers' demonstrations in the streets as well as demonstrations against the AFD objecting to the coalition. The coalition's popularity has slumped. And if you are the AFD... The far-right party, this is great because they don't want to be seen as simply the anti-immigration party. They are on the side of people against a failing leadership. And that is um, you know, what how about, they want so, to be perceived. My, my Brexiteer friends in Britain, and I still have quite a few, they would argue one of the truth about Brexit and the changes we've been discussing on this programme within the Conservative Party essentially contained the growth of the far right and a big kind of populist anti-immigration party within the mainstream political structures in Britain. In other words, it was contained within the Conservative Party. We haven't got AFD equivalent or we haven't got Marine Le Pen and, you know, frankly, the Reform Party, which is the kind of successor to UKIP, is not challenging to be the kind of great national force that uh, the AFD is in Germany. So that that's a kind of Brexiteer argument. Do you give it any credence? Well, I think that the difference between having a PR system and first-past-the-post makes a big difference there because uh, what happens in France and in Germany is that the far-right party can not only garner support, and don't forget UKIP was polling over 20% in its heyday or even higher. In Germany, that translates into seats in the Bundestag. In France, it gets Marine Le Pen to the final runoff against Macron in the presidential election. And our system makes that much harder. So in the end, what happens is... It puts Nigel Farage in the European Parliament. Well, it puts Nigel Farage in the European Parliament rather than him becoming president of Britain, which is a... 
of course, the other thing, I mean, Dexit is kind of... Dexit. Tell our listeners Well, it's Brexit, but not Britain, Germany, and Germany's Deutschland, and that's your D. Um, I called it Drexit earlier, and you said, no, that's wrong, it's Dexit. So I'm saying Dexit. The thing is, though, all of our lifetimes, post-war Germany, has always seen its its place as at the centre of Europe. Well, it was the original coal and iron and steel community between... France and Germany was absolutely a core to the sort of... In the first half of the century, it saw itself at the centre of Europe in a different way. But of course, it was absolutely the centre of... of, Reconciliation. I think it's inconsistent. Whereas for Britain, it's the opposite. I mean, our problem was always, we found it very hard to see ourselves politically at the centre of this project. And so for Germany to follow Britain down the Dexit route, you have to have a, a shift in... German political sentiment, even AfD. Let's be clear: it'd be the end of the EU. It would. Even the AfD voters, when polled, they back away. A majority say they want to stay in the European Union. Yeah, I mean, you know, Greece flirted with leaving the euro under various radical parties of the left, backed off. Marine Le Pen has pulled right back from being saying France is going to leave the EU. So I don't, you know, what I think the AfD is saying they should have a referendum on leaving the EU, but they want to stay in. Well, all I can say is, having been there and done that, my advice to anyone is don't have a referendum on leaving the EU unless you actually want to leave. I think you can say also that Britain failed in its negotiation to change Europe and we ended up leaving. Germany will be able to change Europe before Germany leaves the European Union because if Germany leaves, that is the end of not just the euro, but the the EU. So I kind of think not in my lifetime. Mm, always dangerous thing to say. Anyway, that's it for this week. Of course, we'll be back on Monday with EMQs, ex-ministers' questions, where we answer the very many questions that you have been sending in, or as many as we can. And we're very much looking forward to that. Hope you can join us for that. And we're going to be talking about strange rules in Parliament and uh, George's trip down a coal mine. What is expansionary fiscal contraction? I've had some brilliant questions. Don't forget, you can always send us your questions and voice notes by emailing questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. See you on Monday. See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. <laughs>